I'm Lucas, aka Corona Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and whatever else is on my mind as of late. So, I guess I should acknowledge the, uh, you know, month or two month long hiatus of the podcast. I'm trying to resurrect it, take it a bit more, uh, wanted to say seriously, but I guess I'll say diligently. It's a slight nuance there. Uh, yeah, so hopefully episodes will be coming out uh, on a regular basis. Uh, a couple of episodes this week, at least. And the reason for the hiatus has been just, uh, I've been busy working on a big paper. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that one today. It's about sort of redoing UC security. I could spend a whole hour at least talking about it, uh, and I'll probably do that sometime this week, so look forward to that. But, you know, it's a 100-page paper, so it's 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 taken up a lot of, uh, of time and thought. Uh, but now I've moved on to sort of the other things I want to talk about in my thesis, so the research load has lined a little bit. And one of those things, which I sort of released recently, is the Threshold DCDSA Protocol Kate Sith. I don't know... I ever talked about it on the podcast. Now, there is an episode on threshold signatures and on threshold ECDSA, and I was working on Kate Seth already at the time. So I don't quite remember how far I had gotten into talking about it, uh, or how far it was at the time. Um, I did a, most of the work back in November, and then sort of got caught up with other stuff, and then now I finished it uh, recently, a couple weeks ago. And sort of uh, have been working on basically the paper related to the actual code. So yeah, I guess uh, before we dive in, the, what uh, the thing is, maybe we should talk about threshold ECDSA a little bit. So ECDSA is a signature scheme uh, over elliptic curves. That's what the EC is for, and the DSA is a digital signature algorithm. And this is sort of one of the two main signature algorithms using curves. The other one is Schnorr signatures or ED DSA. Although ED DSA is not, if you want to be extremely pedantic about it, ED DSA is Schnorr signatures using an Edwards curve. Uh, so usually ED25519. That's the that's the signature scheme. Well, yeah, it's a bit uh, it's a bit interesting. Curve 25519 is the curve, and ED25519 is a specific signature scheme using Curve 25519, uh, if I have my specs uh, down right. But it's sort of interesting, because the ED in that name just means Edwards curve, which is the type of curve it is. So the curve itself could have been called ED25519, and that wouldn't have been odd naming. So there's also X25519, which is the standard for... Diffie-Hellman exchange. But anyhow, CDSA is a signature scheme over a curve, and it's a bit less convenient to thresholdize. And thresholdizing means creating a protocol allowing people with a sharing of the key, so they have multiple shares of the private key, and unless you have enough of the shares, you don't know what the private key is. So if I have a minority of shares, for example, I don't know what the key is at all. I know what the public key is, but not what the private key is. And the idea is you want to be able to run a protocol to create a signature without learning what the shares are. So one way to do it would be to 
reconstruct the private key using the shares and then design using that. But that doesn't count because then you sort of only do that once before learning the private key, and that's not great. And I did a whole episode on threshold DCSA, so I won't get into like why it's it's difficult, but to get into it a little bit. That's difficult because essentially you need to multiply two secrets. Whereas in Schnorr signatures, you're always uh, multiplying a secret value and a public value and that you can sort of do in a very friendly way with the right uh, sharing scheme. So there have been a suite of protocols for Threshold DCSA and kits that sort of separates it out from those protocols and that it's kind of agnostic to the families of techniques being used. So the big two families are the ability transfer family of special DCDSA protocols and the PIA or homomorphic encryption family. And Kate said is sort of agnostic to which of these two techniques you use because it sort of cheats by using a form of uh, pre-processing called beaver triples. And the idea is that the triples are going to be generated using one of those two techniques. But, but Kate said itself doesn't care. I'll probably revisit uh, the notion of triples in a bit. But I want to stay with like a high level overview of Kate Seth for now. So anyhow, it's a protocol. I wrote the spec months and months ago, like in November. Then I implemented the spec, uh, mostly in November, and then I finished implementing it recently. And then I also got around to benchmarking it. And to, I guess, my pleasant surprise, it's actually quite faster than other uh, protocols. I don't want to like brag too much. Uh, it's not the point. Um, and also, like, there's not... Uh, you know, I'd have to run the benchmarks myself. Uh, and also, you know, you have to make sure that you're comparing the right stuff and that, you know, the settings are the same and that you don't have accidental overhead when you're running these benchmarks, you know. Take the take the 10x number with a, you know, a little grain of salt. And if someone has better benchmark numbers they want to conduct uh, or they want to criticize the methodology of the benchmarks in the repository, uh, that's fine by me. Uh, but anyhow, you know, 10 times. Uh, and it sort of matches... Uh, slow implementation of some of the protocols that I worked on a couple years ago. Uh, those were, you know, kind of slow. So basically, uh, to illustrate, uh, you know, signing with the CGGMP protocol in my implementation, which was like constant time, so kind of slow, uh, a couple years ago was like a second, you know, that order of magnitude, whereas signing with Kate Sith, once you've done the preprocessing, is on the order of uh, milliseconds. Uh, so it's significantly faster. And pre-processing itself is like 60 milliseconds. So it's still faster than actually just the signing. And that's really the comparison because sort of the, the heavy lifting is done during the signing phase for protocols like CGGMP, which do, or I guess any of the older uh, Threshold DCDSA protocols have this thing where most of the heavy work is in the online signing phase itself because there's no kind of pre-processing. There's a, well, I'll talk about like sort of the advantage of, of this kind of pre-processing. Uh, there's a, you can sort of argue that they do use pre-processing in the sense that you can, using the private key share, you can generate what's called a pre-signature before knowing the message. Uh, the advantage of, of Kate Sith's pre-processing is that you don't even need the, the private key share. So that's, that's convenient, as we'll talk about in a bit. So yeah, I did some preliminary, you know, benchmarks, just uh, calculating CPU time. And then another fun thing that I tried my hand at was uh, simulating network latency. So often in like MPC papers, uh, you read a section where they talk about LANs and WANs. Uh, 
and they like rent AWS machines and say, oh yeah, we have three, you know, 50 or like five AWS machines and different data centers uh, across the globe and we benchmarked it, blah, blah, blah. These are the results we got. And so, I mean, that's pretty good, but uh, the advantage, well, the disadvantage is that you have to actually rent those machines, right? And that's kind of annoying. Um, I was about to say it's not reproducible, it sort of is in that uh, you're probably going to get standard machines. Although over time, it's possible that uh, there's like performance deflation in the sense that uh, AWS will say, oh, well, we're improving the performance of all our micro instances, you know. So what a micro instance is over time might change. Uh, I, so far, I don't think that's happened. Um, but in terms of reproducibility, like you, it's difficult to run like a script and get the results. Like it's it's some effort to set that up. Usually, it's usually it's probably done manually. I assume. Um, but if you could simulate uh, this network latency, because well, because the reason why you want to do this on, you know, natural cloud environments is twofold. One, you get a standard uh, machine in terms of computation performance that's useful for comparing you know, computational benchmarks. So you have a standard well benchmark uh, to use. Versus just, you know, I ran it on my laptop. Uh, who knows what CPU that has. I, I got a new MacBook. Now it's uh, twice as fast, you know. And the second reason, and this is the one that shows up, especially when they talk about, like, WAN uh, benchmarks, is they want to benchmark the fact that you're on networks that have that are separated and so have latency between them and also sometimes have uh, bandwidth constraints. And that uh, that's important because... Sometimes the trade-offs you can make in a protocol are going to affect this a lot. For example, one trade-off is that you have extra rounds, so you have more back-and-forth communication in your protocol. Maybe that saves computation, but that may not be very smart if you have a high latency network, because then each of those round trips uh, may cost you like 200 milliseconds. And 200 milliseconds is a lot of computation. <laughs> uh, you know, millisecond is a lot of computation. Even in cryptography, we're like, uh, we actually end up having some expensive operations. Uh, yeah, 200 milliseconds is a lot, so a lot of the time your computation is sort of dwarfed by that, that cost. Um, also, some protocols may make the trade-off of saying, oh, we're going to do a bandwidth-intensive thing. Well, they're, they're not going to phrase it that way, but they might say, oh, well, it's okay if we send a bit more data um, if it saves us computation, you know. Um, for example, like you might you might argue that well, you know, maybe it's not worth it to compress data because like the person decompressing it is like has a super slow CPU, so it's better for them just to, to read it. Uh, probably not the best example, but it sort of illustrates the trade-off there. And of course, this uh, isn't a great trade-off as your networks have less bandwidth. Uh, if the network has a lot of bandwidth, you don't really care. And this is sometimes sort of an orthogonal thing to to latency. Often the so-called bandwidth delay product is a very important uh, performance thing because it sort of affects uh, it affects like sort of how much you can have on the wire if you have like a confirmation-based protocol like TCP and like how fast you can sort of uh, you can grow a connection and especially a loss. But um, in the context of MPC benchmarking, you can sort of treat these things as orthogonal because you can imagine. Uh, a setup where you have a big pipe, it just takes a long while for stuff to get from point A to point B. Kind of like uh, a cargo ship, right? You know, a cargo ship is a huge amount of bandwidth. Uh, it's just kind of slow. That's fine. So, anyhow, I wanted to simulate uh, various network conditions, so I wrote a little library. 
which I need to clean up and publish. Uh, it's called Hiso Chan. It's like a pun because like uh, Hiso is like uh, delivery in Japanese or one of the words for it. And Chan is like a suffix that you can use for people. It's like a cute uh, suffix. But Chan also can be used to mean channel, right? Like in Rust. So it's like uh, like channels that are bad at delivering messages. So they add delay and whatnot. And the way the library works is very simple. It's just uh, basically, you know, a pipe that has some delay because of how many bytes can be sent per second, uh, tracked down to a very small level granularity, and uh, a delay based on how long it takes to send bytes from one side to the other. And basically the way it works is that when you send, it sort of calculates the the delay before bytes can sort of leave the, the pipe based on either the latency or the sort of bandwidth constraints, and it, and it tracks these a bit separately because uh, you need that logic. For example, if I have, imagine I have a pipe with like a one gigabyte per second uh, link, but a long latency that might happen, you know. Uh, in this case, very often I'm not gonna be constrained by the bandwidth, I'm sending like small packets. Uh, but what I am gonna be constrained by is a latency, but stuff can sort of happen in parallel in the sense that like once I've sent 100 bits on the wire, then I can sort of immediately send the next 100 bits and uh, most of latency is going to be to add a bit more numbers to it. Let's say at time zero, I send, you know, my first packet and small compared to the bandwidth, and then one millisecond later I send my next packet. If there's 100 milliseconds of latency, other packets are going to arrive at time 100 and 101, uh, and that's fine. Whereas if you're bandwidth constrained, you have to sort of wait for both. So imagine like it takes two seconds. To put just one packet on the on the network, then if I have two packets, I'm gonna it's gonna take four seconds. Uh, whereas if it takes six, two seconds to travel, then two small packets that don't uh, you know squash the bandwidth, it's gonna take about two seconds because they can sort of travel you know right behind each other. So yeah, that's an important consideration to take into account in terms of the library. And so I tested different network configurations, and the most extreme that I had was uh, like a hundred birdies with like 300 milliseconds of ping and like one megabyte uh, per second of bandwidth. And yeah, so, and the performance was actually sort of acceptable. Even like signing was still like a couple seconds. Uh, generating the triples was like 30 seconds or something. Or it, I forget. It wasn't great. Uh, let me actually check. Oh, well. Uh... I don't edit this podcast, so you're going to... Yeah, it was 30 seconds, right? My memory is good. My memory is good, but my confidence about my memory is bad. That's the, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, anyhow, well, actually, I can edit this. I'm just too lazy to do it. Uh, I feel like it improves the podcast. You know, I was thinking about this. It's like a differentiating factor for the podcast. The fact that it's like not unedited. unedited. Maybe I should put that like... Uh, it's like a tagline, you know, the unscripted, unscripted uh, cold dive straight to your ears from my mouth. So, yeah, network benchmarking. Fun stuff. Surprisingly good results. And I also think the library is, is useful for, like, other things. Like, I think in general, it's, like, much simpler to just have benchmarks you can run by just, you know, using cargo red example, you know. Uh, it's much simpler than, like, setting up AWS, even if it's, like, not 
as good. There's like some things that aren't modeled, of course. Um, in practice, I don't think these matter too much for the context of MPC. Uh, one important thing that isn't modeled is like TCP slow start. So when you create a TCP connection, like it takes, takes a while to wrap up the bandwidth because you're sort of finding sort of the optimal point because of con congestion control. That kind of thing isn't modeled. And that can be an important consideration if you're like uh, trying to do an MPC protocol for like HTTP. Because then, like, uh, if the client, if the models that the client connects and, and does some stuff, then if you have a very bandwidth-intensive protocol, then things can be bad. So one example where this is actually important is uh, if you're benchmarking TLS, uh, the the slow start is very important to take into account. Like, you can't just simulate a network and then say, okay, we're going to go full hog <laughs> on the network from the start, because then you're going to get some really good benchmark numbers for uh, new post-quantum key exchanges with huge uh, public keys and whatnot. Because uh, you're like, well, you know, it's 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 still you know under, it's like a it's like one megabyte, so it takes one second to transmit. But you know, the the slow start is going to kill you on that. So that's sort of an interesting thing to consider, right? But yeah, I need need a bit of cleanup still for that to be super useful for their libraries. And I guess you know, in talking about you know stuff that can be used from Kate Sith and other libraries, I should talk a little bit about like the design of the library as much as you can orally. <laughs> describing code but um so i guess if you look at a lot of libraries that do like mpc protocols it's kind of like a new area in terms of library design i don't think we have super great patterns yet uh for this kind of thing so a lot the way a lot of libraries work is that they're very sort of statically designed around like what happens so like let's say you have a three-round protocol there's going to be one function that's that like explicitly takes in the input and returns like the state for the next uh, round and like the output to send, etc. And so you have to like manually orchestrate these three functions together. And like you have to buffer inputs because maybe you receive a message for round three, but you're in round one and you need to handle all this logic yourself uh, and whatnot. And you also need to be aware of the number of rounds. It's kind of annoying because you have to also, it's annoying as like the library implementer, uh, even though you're offloading complexity to the user, because like you have to, you have to sort of write your things in like this kind of stateless way and like it adds a lot of boilerplate code where you have to like you know write these states these intermediate states which don't really mean anything uh because you have like a bunch of variables to keep track of and it's very annoying and i wrote a library in kind of that style before and it wasn't i didn't think it was like ideal and whereas here the api i tried to provide is very simple or at least i try to make it simple and the idea is you you have a thing called a protocol which represents sort of a running instance of one node participating in the protocol. And you can do two things to it. Uh, you can feed it a message. You say, okay, I received a blob of bytes uh, from some other person. Uh, each party is uniquely identified by some number. So, you know, maybe I received this blob of bytes from number two or number three, and I just feed you then to the protocol and you can use that. And then uh, the protocol doesn't do anything by itself. You have to poke it. And poking can do one of several things. Either the protocol can say, whoops, there's an error. Uh, we need to stop the protocol now. Something went wrong. Uh, the protocol can say, okay, uh, here's a message. I need to send it uh, to everybody else. Uh, and doesn't need to, and you can just send that one by one, or it's like a, some kind of broadcast mechanism, like a bulletin board or something, doesn't matter. Or I need to send this message privately to somebody else. In that case, it's implied that you should be using encryption, of course, authenticated encryption. In fact, all messages really should be authenticated. Uh, that way you can at least check that they're coming from the right person. The worst bad stuff is going to happen, of course. 
and you can also return a value. The protocol can say, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Here's the return value. Uh, and the protocol is over. We've succeeded. Or the protocol can say, after you poke it, uh, I can't make any progress until you feed me new messages. Uh, so you can think the protocol is like a little state machine and it basically looks at the messages it's received so far and its current state and then decides to move to a new state and produces an output, which is either just saying error, here's the output of the protocol, here's some messages to send, or I can't make any progress until you feed me more messages uh, because I'm sort of waiting to receive stuff. And this is a very simple API to use as an end user, and it abstracts away all the details of like round complexity and whatnot, um, which is great. Uh, but internally, like if you were to write this instance manually, it'd be very, very tedious because you'd have to like write a state machine that's like, oh, you know, if I'm in round one and I receive messages X, Y, Z, blah, 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 then I need to return wait unless I would, you know, it's very annoying. But Rust has a brilliant tool to write state machines in implicitly. It's called async await. And async await lets you write some brilliant state machines that get generated by the compiler. Cause you can just say, oh, I wait until I receive a message and the protocol and the compiler is gonna generate a, a code, which, you know, this there's this poking and polling for you. So basically what I did is I wrote, uh, I wrote like kind of a shim, which takes async await and uses a, a sort of a, an embedded executor via small, the library, which provides a, a, a tiny executor for async code. And that basically it converts async await that uses these special data structures for like buffering and receiving messages. And it converts that to a protocol state machine, uh, which is great. So inside of the code itself of the library, you use async await. And it means that you sort of the, the code of the library tries to match essentially one for one with the specification. So each line of the specification generates a couple lines or so uh, of protocol code instead of the library. And it's very convenient. And uh, this sort of shim takes care of all of the things related to buffering messages too. So there's a system which I used uh, in the code is actually now useful for formalizing the protocol and uh, like uh, UC security and stuff. And it's this notion of wait points. So the idea is like when you send a message, you explicitly identify like what uh, each sort of like message has a role, which is basically sort of a number. But could even have like extra labels onto it. You can imagine it as like each waypoint uh, in a protocol has like a unique identifier. Um, so they can identify which message belongs where. And then the idea is that you wait for messages at a specific waypoint. And in particular, stuff isn't really round based in the sense that if I have two messages to send in one round, I'm going to immediately send them as soon as I can because I want to overlay any kind of network latency with my computation. So imagine I need to do a big computation twice to send two messages. Well, one way to do it in like a round-based approach, which other libraries sort of refers to do by the sort of design of the API, you'd compute both things, takes a lot of time, and then you send the messages out and have to wait uh, for everybody to send those stuff. And so like there's some wasted time in the sense that you could have sent the first message and then done the computation at the same time that you're waiting for the first message because it's already... Basically, as soon as it's out of the, the gate, you can do other stuff while, while you're waiting for it to be sent to other people. So you want to do that as much as possible. And so this waypoint stuff is very useful for writing, uh, writing protocols. Uh, also, with this abstraction, you can sort of have waypoints that are more than just numbers. You can sort of uh, fork 
what I call channels, which sort of the st stuff you receive a message on. The idea is each channel you can receive a message for a specific waypoint on that channel, but you can also like fork a channel with a specific name, uh, so that like you have a new named channel which sort of is sort of distinct. So you can have sort of multiple like channels to send messages along, and this is useful if you're composing protocols in parallel, which I actually do inside of the library for some of the more complicated parts. I need to run two things at the same time. So what you do is you take your channel and you fork it in two. Uh, now you have two channels which are, won't collide in terms of sending messages and both of the protocols are running simultaneously you can sort of use those. And all the simultaneous stuff is sort of taken care of by async await. So very beautiful, very composable. And this kind of protocol abstraction I think might be useful for MPC in general. Um, I'm probably going to end up writing uh, a few more protocols this semester. So I, ex I expect probably to extract that out and, and try and use it. Um, although I guess I'll, I'll talk more about my, uh, my thesis uh, in an upcoming episode this week, but uh, some of the bulletin board stuff might not translate uh, directly. I talked about that in an uh, episode uh, a few months ago too. So I guess uh, I should talk a little bit about the form of preprocessing we use. So Kate uses a special form of preprocessing called a beaver triple. Um, I'll probably explain that a bit more in the blog post, but Basically, what you can think of it this as it's, it's a kind of preprocessing which doesn't depend on the private key. And this is sort of the main advantage. And most of the work of the protocol is just in generating these triples. And you can do these far in advance and without knowing which key you're going to use them for. And that's the, that's the main utility compared to like a key-specific form of preprocessing. So what you can do, like this is the sort of background example I have for like how uh, someone might be using the libraries that they have some kind of you know, custody service where they want to use the threshold ECDSA. That's like most of the use cases I've seen for, for the protocol. And so you may not know, you know, which key you want to sign with uh, in advance. Maybe you have like hundred users or something. So you have a hundred different keys, uh, but you don't know in advance, like which users are going to be popular or not. So you can't like, if you had to do pre-computations per, for each key, either you do wasted work or you have to sort of like guesstimate how much you need to do for each person, which is complicated. You can actually make a system that works reasonably well based on that, because you can forecast, you know. Um, but the advantage of triples, you can just say, okay, well, I just generated a thousand triples. Uh, these are enough for a day, probably. And no matter which users actually show up. And so that's the big advantage of using triples, is that you can do them before even having the keys, really. Uh, so that, And also you can sort of have the triple generating nodes... This is sort of an advanced architecture, but you can even imagine having a system where each node that actually have key, that has key material is like segregated uh, from the triple generating node itself, or something like that. So like it has its own private like uh, maybe even quorum of triple generating nodes, <laughs> so that like even if one is corrupted, it's fine. You can imagine something like that. So then. As you're generating the triples, you don't actually need to access or have access to the key material. Um, I should caveat that kind of model because, uh, well, the triples don't need the key material when generating. If a triple is compromised and used, that's very bad. Also, a triple can't be used twice. That's also very bad. So it's, you know, handle with care. I'd, I'd say, like many, you know, cryptographic key material, triples are like nuclear waste. Well, toxic waste, let's say. Uh, Basically, you don't want to you want to handle them with care, and you don't want to treat them willy nilly. If you actually use a if you don't use a triple, it's completely harmless. Uh, but as soon as you use it, you need to make sure that everybody like you know forgets the triple <laughs> and doesn't use it again. 
and you want to make sure that they don't like reveal what was in the triple because that could uh i mean basically yeah with the sort of advanced optimized setup revealing a triple is just akin to revealing the nuts in ecdsa that's really bad so yeah that's that i guess to conclude since we're up at the 30 minute mark which is what i'm trying to aim for approximately with these episodes uh, i should talk about some things i want to you know add to the library um so i guess the the main thing that i, I plan on actually adding is more support for more curves especially more hashes because right now i, I use the sick p256k1 which is the most popular hash for ethereum and bitcoin well that's not a hash it's the curve used by uh bitcoin and ethereum it's not a question of popularity um but I only use uh, SHA-256 as the hash is like a hard-coded thing. Uh, because in terms of the API uh, for threshold signing, you pass in a message, which is much uh, less error-prone than other things. And I think that's sort of the correct API to pass in a message, because you always sign messages. And you know it should agree on what message they want to sign, not what hash they want to sign. Otherwise, you have fun shenanigans. Um, but yeah, so you since it's hard-coded, you want to make it so that it's generic so that you can accept different curves and hashes, and especially different hashes that where you can have both Bitcoin-compatible and Ethereum-compatible signatures, uh, even if you don't care about other curves. So that's something I plan to add in the near future. Uh, another thing I plan to add is what, what's called a refresh protocol, or even an extension of that called like resharing. So the idea is like if you have a private key that's virtual shared, you can sort of extend that to create a new sort of sharing of the same key with uh, extra parties. And you can see this is basically sort of a general generalization of key generation. Key generation, like basically the generalization is that with key generation, each person generates new random values that add up to form a key. And then they don't care what the public key is because it just needs to be a new public key. With resharing with the same parties, each person contributes their old share. Uh, and then the end result or each person contributes a linear share, and then the end result has to be the same key as the old one. So the values are not random at all. And you can extend that to sort of resharing by just having some people contribute zero, and then the check that the old key is the, well, the new key is the old key, the public key at least. And so you can formalize this as a general protocol where like, uh, you know, each person submits a value and then they have a check and then they sort of, the functionality should sum up these values and then give you the, that becomes the private key and give you the public key based on that. That's sort of a generalized key generation protocol. If everybody submits random values, you get key gen. If everybody submits their old value, you get refresh. And if some people submit zero, you get sort of a new people integrating method. Also a big shortcoming is that I haven't uh, written the security proof yet. Uh, it's just a matter of effort. I'm also kind of learning how to use my new sort of UC variant uh, so I'm using that for security. So I'm learning a bunch of tricks and like, you know, how do I formalize the synchronous communication and, you know, how should aborts be modeled and uh, this framework, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sort of resolving those issues. Well, there weren't really issues, just sort of like, you know, decisions to make, let's say. But yeah, I'm getting much better at writing proofs on MPS. I should probably reserve that for another episode though. So stay tuned. For me talking about bound pens and why it's impossible to write bad proofs with them uh, as I talk about how to write MPS proofs in the near future. Uh, otherwise, hopefully this was a, an enjoyable return to form for the Cold Dive episodes, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode in particular. 
and I hope to catch you on the next one. See you around.